Hello everyone, a slightly different episode again this week as this is another conversation taken from another podcast where I sat down with April Turner from Recruitment Entrepreneur. For those of you that are current business owners or aspiring business owners, I think you'll find this conversation really useful. I used all of the information that I have taken from all of the amazing recruitment entrepreneurs that I've interviewed and I broke it down to the five successful pillars all recruitment companies have in common. So I go through each pillar with April. We go uh, one by one, break it down. And this is the episode where we did that. So enjoy it. Very much welcome to Feedback and uh, enjoy this week's episode. Pishem, met in 2019. You're mm-hmm. here today. I'm interviewing you. Yeah. You're not interviewing me, which is a, <laughs> a different turn of events. Tell the listeners what it is that you do mm-hmm. and where it all started. Sure. So I'll try and keep it short and sweet. Yeah. So I uh, worked in the recruitment industry for just under three years yeah. um, in a small business outside of London. Um, I then joined a business called Hoxha Media, Sean, who I know that you know. Yeah. The reason why I moved up to London and joined him was basically going into my second year in recruitment. I sort of really tried to utilize building my brand as a way to differentiate myself, stand out, um, beat my competitors. And it really helped me and I yeah. really sort of bought into it. So I actually met Sean um, by him contributing to my blog, which turned into a podcast. So it was called the Recruitment Rollercoaster uh, Podcast or yeah. blog at the, at the time. So me and Sean connected there. He actually mentored me for a period. I learned more about what he was up to, what he was trying to do, and I really you know, believed in yeah, that. Yeah. So decided to move up to London like five and a bit years ago. Um, I thought, worst case scenario, I'll end up back in recruitment. <laughs> so I then joined his business as the first salesperson with Sean, and then I was like sprung into the world of recruitment, which is London. Yeah. Because when you're outside of London, I don't think you realize like how big the industry is, if I'm honest. Yeah, you're so right. So so joined Sean's business, full startup phase. It was in this like office, which was basically a construction site in Bow. It was like, (laughs) it was like proper startup, but I learned so much. So then all of a sudden I went from recruiting insurance professionals for insurance companies and insurance brokers for to selling marketing solutions to recruitment companies. Obviously, (laughs) a bit of a change, right? So, but then from that point, my sort of target audience, my world was the recruitment industry. So me and Sean tried to do what we were preaching, which was building your brand, generating inbound business. So I really built, tried to build my personal brand in the recruitment industry. They helped me take my podcast to the next level. We were bringing people to the office, interviewing them. Yeah. So I worked there for just over a year. And then I've always wanted to do my own thing. So I decided to take action on an idea I had, which was helping recruiters do what I did, which was build their personal brands. So I went out on my own and I basically had a one-person business selling training services to recruitment companies where I would either take an individual recruiter through a 12-week personal branding training course Mm -hmm. or I would take a group of recruiters through a similar um, type of learning experience, all centered around taking April who's, you know, doesn't know what to write online, is, you know, worried about other people's opinions, to then consistently sharing content that drives a business. So I did that for, again, like probably 18 months, two years. And along the way, I was, you know, continuing to grow the podcast and then the catalyst for what I'm doing now um, is, and this is what I was saying about it, sort of organically grew yeah. one thing to the next, was 
just before COVID, November 2019, I uh, hosted the very first like live podcast event. Mm -hmm. It was a ticket event, £10 per ticket, uh, 75 person venue, and we sold that out in like a day. Wow. So like that was a real interesting experience for me because my experiences of like industry events before that was just for uh, it was just for business owners. Okay. So I've been to events at like the recruitment network, uh, members only, yeah. uh, these specific groups that are tailored to April the business owner. Yeah. And I always wondered like why isn't there like a like a, um, a specific space where April the recruiter can go yeah. that wants to grow, that wants to improve, that wants to learn from other industry professionals. So that event was the real catalyst for what I'm doing now because the the feedback on that event was amazing and the majority of people in the room were recruiters that partnered with their own cash because they wanted to learn from other recruiters, share ideas, share challenges. So went into the COVID year, we're in 2020 now, um, with a business plan around recruitment mentors, which is now Hector, um, which basically was all centered around how can we build a place where April the recruiter can go um, who wants to improve, that wants to level up their performance, that really likes the idea of learning from other recruiters. And it sort of evolved from there, really. So I'll just fast forward to where we are now, which is, um, yeah, we're an all-in-one training platform. What we do that's different is our training is powered by current top performers. So all of the training that's delivered on our training platform is from current top performers, not people that did the job 5, 10, 15 years ago, yeah. which is fairly typical of the tra uh, training experiences a lot of people have had in the industry. So we partner with growing recruitment companies to reduce skill gaps in their teams, help them improve important ratios like job-to-fill ratios or CV-to-interview ratios, all through training and education. And that's sort of the big mission that we're on now, which if I'm honest, I've always been on with the podcast and these things, which is all around changing the perception of the recruitment industry. So it's yeah. sort of one thing has led to, to the other. Got it. Okay, fine. That makes sense. So um, obviously boiling that down to kind of the people that you've met in your mm. time, we were just discussing, was it nearly 500 podcasts that you've released? Yeah. <laughs> um, so what we're going to try and do today is use all of that knowledge and insight that you've got from those people and kind of look at what you think or what we collectively think are the five pillars to building a successful yeah. business. Yeah. So just to add to that, you're completely right. So who am I to share these things? Yeah. The context is I'm drawing from yeah, the over 400 interviews I've done with yeah. either successful recruitment entrepreneurs or maybe top performers. Mm -hmm. And the only people I speak to every single day are recruitment founders or grand recruitment companies because that's who we sell our training platform to. Yeah. So I'm t today talking about, uh, yeah, the pillars from that perspective yeah. of like what I've seen, yeah. you know, great companies do, the common things that I've seen. So I'm, I'm talking from, from that place. Great, okay. Um, so what's interesting is that you speak about the five pillars and something that we talk a lot about here is the nine character characteristics of value. Okay. So when you're looking at someone either looking at investing in the launching a business or in the portfolio, we kind of look at those as a way of measuring success. So mm -hmm. we can kind of combine those two and your pillars and see what we Sounds come good. up with. So one of the pillars that we were going to start off with is that you mentioned their solution focus, not vacancy focus. Mm -hmm. Where does that come from? Yeah, so... I've had a lot of recruiters on my podcast talk about how they really approach what they do uh, by solving problems. Yeah. I've used this soundbite quite a, quite a lot now, but the, the perfect soundbite that I always like sharing is we had an amazing recruiter on our podcast who now has her own business. She's called Amber Penrose. Yeah. And basically, uh, she shared this on a training session that she did um, on our platform, which was uh, what took her from being a 400 grand a year recruiter to an 800, 900 grand um, a year recruiter was she stopped chasing vacancies and she only chased problems. Okay. So to add a bit more meat to that, 
would be, I think a lot of recruiters, they find out April's hiring. Yeah. It's a skill set that they know they have candidates for, that they can, they're very confident they can fill the job. They get you on the phone, they've got a candidate to speak to you about, and they just become really laser focused on the vacancy at hand. Mm -hmm. So what we're talking about here is, I think, smart recruiters and recruiters that build you know, long-term value clients who are loyal clients that are repeat customers that pay a lot of money over a long period of time, yeah. they learn to understand why these companies are hiring people in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's like the solutions bit where if I find out that you're hiring for a recruiter, mm -hmm. Rather than me going, what does this, you know, what, what's the, tell me about this job spec. What do you need them to be? Like just being laser focused on that. I think the best recruiters who are solution focused will yeah. take a step back and go, April, we're going to cover, you know, what you need from this person today. However, I'd love to understand, like, how do we get here? What have you tried so far? What hasn't worked when you've engaged with a recruitment agency? What has worked? And really understand, like, why they're hiring in the first place. Mm -hmm. And by doing that, you're going to start uncovering challenges and problems that this business has. You're going to yeah. start uncovering if they don't hire April, the recruiter, what happens, what are the knock-on effects. And that's where you start having business conversations. Yeah. And you're talking about problems, not just vacancies. Yeah. Something that we, or something that I've picked up in my time already is that when we look at a business, there's kind of the term concentration risk on one individual, i.e. that top performer that goes to market. Mm. And there's a lot of... I suppose accountability on that person to perform and deliver because they're great at what they're doing, they're solution led. Mm -hmm. How do you, as a founder, create consistency across your team so it's not just one individual going out and like fighting the battles and you know adding value? What what do you think the market's saying? So how so how do you so basically so concentration risk as in you have one to top, top performer yeah who's bringing on a lot of the business yeah how do you make sure that's not the case yeah so how do you create consistency across multiple recruiters not just one individual in a business what are people like what have you learned from the people you've met is there any that's training <laughs> it does come down to training yeah it does so like things I'd think about is have you thought about what your processes are. Yeah. Like I speak to a lot of recruitment companies and a lot of them haven't documented their processes. So right, okay. do have we documented how this top how your top performers take a job spec? Okay. Have you documented how they qualify a candidate? Like I think the thing that I think about when thinking about that is how can we equip our more of our team with how our top performers are doing what they do? Because okay. a lot of recruiters or, like I might work for a business and I can see April is a top biller. Yeah. I might not actually know how she does what she does. So it's about making sure that in your business, people are aware how people do what they do. It's the visibility on that. And yeah, like yeah. systems and processes. A lot of people don't have that. So you've recruited in the tech sales space, right? So yeah. they call it playbooks. So we have a playbook for our business where I've documented our sales process. I've documented what our ideal customer profile is. Got I've it, documented okay. our outreach scripts. Yeah. Like I think that's what I'd be thinking about is how can we equip more of our team with how to do our process? Yeah. And if you haven't got anything documented, that would be something I'd consider. Do you know what? You've raised a really, really good point then. It's just got me thinking about a question. So like, let's say I'm, you know, I want to go and start my own business. How mm. early on do you think a founder should be setting those out, right? So mm. let's say I've gone from, um, I don't know, Hayes, mm. associate director. I'm going to go and launch my business on Monday. I've got a team that I'm going to bring in. What have you seen from the people you've met? How quickly are they introducing all this material and ICP? I think, I think the sooner the better. Right. Like it, it, that should be, you know, we're talking about like what your process is, how you do things. Yeah. Um, the, I think that's, I think sooner the better because 
it, it's actually a really good exercise to think about how how do I take uh, a job spec? How do I recruit for a vacancy? How do I do these things? And actually documenting those things. The reason why sooner the better is because the more of those things that you have documented, um, you're going to benefit from it later on. Mm -hmm. Because if I document all of how, like get the things out of my head on how I do things, yeah. um, and I know I want to grow and scale, when I do hire and scale, I've got things to yeah. give people. I've got things to, I've got uh, assets to for people to reference. Because mm -hmm. it's really difficult to train people, uh, or yeah, to train people if it's all in my head. Mm -hmm which oftentimes it can be for, yeah. for founders. So I'd say sooner the better. And so linking all of that to the original pillar, which is to be solution focused, mm. how do you tr how do you introduce that mindset yeah. into your training? Yeah, great question. So um, interviewed someone recently, I'm going to forget his surname, but a guy called Josh he has a cybersecurity recruitment business. And what I really liked how he approached it, because he doesn't train his uh, recruiters on recruitment. He only trains them on uh, commercial acumen. So he helps them understand yeah. what P&L is. He helps them understand That's what crazy. VCs are and private yeah. equity is because they um, work with a lot of VCs and stuff. So I think it's about as a, as a founder, just just actually uh, equipping your team with the business knowledge because a lot of people don't. Mm -hmm. So if I think when I was in recruitment, no one told me about the importance of good payment terms. No one explained to me how when I make a placement, my company might not get paid for 60 days yeah. or no one tells me about like truly understanding in my industry what the types of people um, that I place, what do they actually do, the impact they have on the business. Like you learn that through time. So I think I would really commit to um, developing commercial acumen. That's actually golden information. Though, I, think. <laughs> I don't think I've actually heard that before in terms of like stripping it back, forgetting how to be good at recruitment and actually thinking of all like you said, the basics. Yeah, I mean, definitely yeah. have the recruitment stuff, yeah. but like, <laughs> but like, yeah, I think it'd be, it's a great thing to equip your team with knowledge-wise. Yeah, no, I, I think so. appreciate that. Um, so uh, kind of moving on to the, to the next pillar. So you speak about obsessing over the important metrics that drive the correct behaviors mm -hmm. again where did that come from <laughs> <laughs> again just from the conversation so i think we've all heard if we worked on recruitment like quality over quantity like i'm sure we've heard that at yeah. some point i think a lot of people would agree that what drives the perception of our industry to be negative i think it's poor experiences yeah it's you know, trying to fling loads of CVs at a job, not thinking about quality, not listening to the candidate, just overall delivering poor experiences for clients candidates. So we've all had KPIs, they're yeah. important. I really don't believe in not having KPIs. Um, I don't think that's helpful. I, you can't improve anything that isn't measured. So I spoke to a lot of recruitment founders that actually sold their business as to why you should be excited to work for them because they didn't have KPIs and then they've now had to implement KPIs because how can you help someone get better if you don't measure anything? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. So, but how, but can we, can we, can you maybe think about the most important metrics? So the ones that I've put down from all the conversations I've had and what I'd really encourage you to think about when you're listening to this is by having this metric in place, what negative behaviors does it encourage, if any? Or does it only encourage you to think about improving the experience for everyone involved? So the two metrics I want you to think about are job-to-fill ratio. Okay. So if you really think about improving your job-to-fill ratio, by improving that and thinking about how you can improve that, does that lead to any sort of like negative behavior? Or does it only get you thinking about how you can deliver a better experience? Yeah. Same with CV to interview. Mm -hmm. It's CVs to the interview ratio. So like, can I really improve my job-to-fill ratio? 
I speak to a lot of companies where their job to fill ratio is like 15%. Mm -hmm. That's bad. That's, that's yeah. not good. So if our job to fill ratio is at 15, 20, 30%, what can we do that can improve that? I think it's going to get you thinking about how can we really qualify out companies that don't take on our advice, that aren't willing to flex on what's required to be competitive. It might really get you thinking about how can we deliver a world-class job intake call. Mm -hmm. It might really get you thinking about making sure that if you do work for a client, they have a good reputation and they don't, they're not going to mess candidates around. Whatever it may be, I think it only gets you thinking about improving processes and improving that overall experience. Mm -hmm. And likewise with CV to interview ratio, it's like if I get really good, if my CV to interview ratio is one to one or it's five to one, there's a lot of people you're speaking to that aren't then getting interviews. Like what sort of experience is that creating? So how can I improve that? Again, it's only going to get you thinking about things like improving your candidate qualification, um, uh, candidate qualification calls, um, making sure that you're speaking to the right candidates, qualifying out candidates, only sending over people that really fit that culture and that business. Mm -hmm. So I don't see any like net negative of thinking about those metrics and having those metrics in place. Yeah. I mean, when you think about what you've said, that then directly links to, I suppose, the success of that individual, that them staying long term, you're looking at the attrition, right? That's mm. not ultimately what... When you're thinking about how valuable a recruitment business is, if you've got people coming and going and people mm. kind of leaving bad reviews, that ultimately affects that recruitment business and the long-term journey that goes on. Right? So all these things that you're talking mm. about, getting right in the beginning affects how April feels in her job, how she feels she's developing, totally. how she performs, and ultimately how my career goes in that yeah, business. Yeah, imagine, so, like, imagine, yeah, your job-to-fill ratio is three to one, which means for every three jobs you work, only yeah. one of them you get paid for. Yeah. Like that's difficult. Do you exactly. know what I mean? That's challenging. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think they're they're like I've spoken to a lot of people, and a lot of people would say they're they're like north star metrics. Okay. But another thing to consider, I interviewed um, a lady recently called Abby Dunn. I found their business really interesting. They do have they do obviously track what people bill, but they don't actually like incentivize or have incentives in place around what April bills. They right, only, okay. uh, one of their core KPIs is the NPS, Net Promoter Score. Interesting. I find that quite interesting. So they are entirely dedicated to getting 90 plus NPS scores. They don't just, um, you know, ask people how likely would you be to recommend us to a friend or colleague when they've placed someone because, mm -hmm. like, you're always likely probably going to get what you want. They do it when they don't place someone. Okay. They do it when someone doesn't get an interview. Yeah. They do it at all the different stages because for them they're absolutely obsessed at improving those NPS scores because they feel that so then they're going to have a knock-on effect on their job to fill ratios and the quality of their service and overall the experience that everyone has with their yeah. brand they're like absolutely obsessed with it and I yeah. thought what a great thing to be focusing on and when you look when you talk about that example can you give us an like can you give us an insight into how that's impacted the overall business the performance the culture yeah so their like... so their their job to fill ratio what she shared with me was 45 percent. that's definitely higher from a lot of companies that i speak to mm -hmm. so how does that impact the business well all of a sudden half of straight away nearly half of the jobs that i work on i know i'm going to get paid for it means that you're dealing with a lot less rubbish clients, yeah. right? Your a lot of their business is built off referrals. Mm -hmm. What you know, that's that's a great position to be in. You're not just always out trying to get new business, new business, new business. A lot of business comes to you, and you're getting referred in. You've already got trust there. Okay. So they're just some of the ways that 
it impacts the business. So just going, sorry, because it's quite interesting. It's quite different, right? So yeah, yeah. naturally, I'm quite inquisitive to know how that works. So generally speaking, give me a lay of the land of what the team structure looks like and how that feeds into the client that's hiring. Yeah, so their team structure is a bit different. Um, it's a bit like, I'd say, a bit like tech sales, actually. So okay. they have two people that do new business. Yeah. Entirely focused on generating new business. Got it. They do discovery calls, which again is one thing that I'd recommend a lot of people to consider mm -hmm. uh, in their sales process. A lot of people don't do discovery calls. So they are targeted on booking discovery calls with uh, companies that fit like, you know, the touch companies they can help. Yeah. Um, so they would then uh, do the discovery call, try and uncover the pain challenges that they have. Their main product is recruitment, but then they also have um, a training offering solution that they can offer. Okay. And I think one other solution, I can't remember, but they do have other sol solutions that 80% of their revenue is recruitment. Mm -hmm. So they're, uh, yeah, they're targeted booking discovery calls with uh, uh, companies. Yeah. If they then agree terms and then they have jobs, agree on jobs for them to be working on, they would then get commission on the first six months of revenue is how they do it. They then have uh, heads of talent where people then manage the client relationship Okay. Um, and then they have delivery cons um, talent consultants that then work on these vacancies. They do deal with the client, they book an interviews, all that. That's how it's been working. But I know they're now experimenting with those new business people having some account management responsibilities. But that's how that's been working for them. So, yeah, a bit different. But it sounds mature. Yeah. And it kind of sounds how it maybe should have been built originally mm. because you see it work in other industries. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm going to say tech because I've worked in tech, right? Mm. And you see how it works. And it also puts a lot of um, focus on what you're actually good at doing. Mm. Like the, the term 360, being mm. good at finding candidates, being fine at winning clients. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to do it all. So yeah. creating structure mm. and allowing April to be good at managing that client, which mm. is where, let's say, I thrive again, feeds into positivity yeah. and happiness in the workplace. Yeah, I just right. think, I just love the idea of being absolutely obsessed with customer experience. Yeah. Like, I think what a great thing to be obsessed with as a recruitment business, because I only think that will lead to good behaviours and change in the perception of our industry. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, so the next point kind of touches on TA, right? So you talk about really knowing what mm -hmm. you're looking for when you hire. I am passionate about TA. It's my industry, um, my background before joining RE. Mm -hmm. um, what is it you've noticed? What are the like the key takeaways where companies have done it right? What would you say? Yeah, so I've referenced this before, but um, interviewed a guy. He's, he's he's really done a good job of continuing to build his brand. I don't know if you've come across it, but he's called Alex Elliott. So he he exited the business called Liquid Personnel. Yeah, for like millions. He's super smart. So he really broke this down um, on the podcast that we did. And I really, I think this is often where people fall short. So firstly, anyone listening to this, do you truly know what your non-negotiables are? I don't know. I actually feel like a lot of founders don't personally. So what I mean by that is, do you know the makeup of your top performers? What do they have in common? Do you know the makeup of your people that don't perform? What do they have in common? Like, firstly, you need to document and be really clear on what your non-negotiables are. Mm -hmm. when you're hiring people it can't just be yeah april's nice i like her i think she'd be good and that like, happens a lot as yeah well. we yeah. you need to document your non-negotiables and that's the first step so some people might have that where often people fall short is then they've got their non-negotiables but they don't map their interview process to uncover those non-negotiables that's like the key insight this is something i discussed in length with alex which i really like so let me bring this to life one of the non-negotiables for me when i was hiring um, my first salesperson mm 
was coachability. That's huge yeah, for me. Yeah, I like So that. if that's one of my non-negotiables, how am I bringing that to life in the interview process? Yeah. You can do it in a few ways. One, I can really make sure that I ask intentional questions for me to find out and give April opportunities to show that she's someone that's coachable. So of course you can do it through intentional questions, um, but you're being a lot more smart with your internal hiring because you're asking specific questions in line with the things that you want to see in them and the mm -hmm. things that you want these people to have. Mm -hmm. The other things that you can do, I actually got this from, you would have worked with him, your old colleague Lewis, so he gave yeah. this advice. So amazing, and I, I don't see why you can't do this in the a recruitment interview process. Coachability, so what I had um, the salesperson uh, who works with me do in the interview process mm -hmm. is we had a phone interview, trying to you know uh, understand how she came across on the phone, how she communicated, really liked what I heard, so I invited her in for a face-to-face. -face. In between that and the face-to-face, -face, I got to do a couple of things. I told her about what our ideal customer profile looked like, and I asked her to find five recruitment companies that she felt fit our ideal customer profile and to send over those companies uh, to me beforehand. What I also wanted her to do is then to put together an outreach email that she would send um, to one of these like personas in yeah. um, a recruitment business. She had to send that to me before the face-to-face. So that's me uh, seeing how she comes across, how she writes. Mm -hmm. Then in the face-to-face, -face, the first part of the interview is a role play. So the first part of the interview is I want her to now call me as if I've had that email and she's following up. So we do the role play and what we're then doing, I'm then seeing how, well, how welcoming is she to feedback. So I've then created an experience, a moment to see mm -hmm. in the interview how coachable she is. Mm -hmm. And that was amazing for me because I, I didn't do any of that before. And the first hire I didn't work out. So that why that worked for me was like I, I actually created an experience in the interview process to see how they would react, how they would like do part of the job. And also I was able to uncover one of my non-negotiables, coachability, because the first thing that she said after, um, the, um, after doing that role play was, I can't wait to get feedback on right. how you think I can improve. Okay. So when you say non-negotiables, kind of anyone that's listening and they're trying to think, okay, what does that look like? Or what does that mean for me? I'm, mm. You know, trying to hire four recruiters. Link that to what a value, what that means to them as an individual, what mm -hmm. they talk us through that. What does that mean? So non-negotiable simply means, does April possess and has, sh has she shown evidence that she has these non-negotiables either through what I just said, like through putting in a scenario and seeing how she reacts? Yeah. Does she show to me that, she's um, showcasing that she is coachable mm -hmm. and can I find things in her journey so far that gives me evidence um, that yeah. she has a non-negotiable so okay. it could be personal responsibility and I'm talking to you about maybe a past experience like is April telling me that this happened to her because she's pointing the blame at someone and she isn't right. sort of going oh I learned this which is why I would do this differently so the non-negotiables are Basically, do they have these values, characteristics, whatever it is for you? Um, uh, and if they don't, then don't hire them. Like right. if she's having the list of things that they, April, ha April has to showcase that she has these things, if she doesn't, we're not hiring them. Let's think about a scenario where, I mean, because if you, across our portfolio, 30 businesses, yeah. each ranging in size, some kind of two-man businesses or two-women businesses and others larger. Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about how to scale your business to make it valuable, who's currently sitting in their SMT mm. building structure, mm -hmm. if you're looking at hiring associate directors that have got a track record and a network, mm -hmm. how do you interview those, 
those people. Because <laughs> I think it's hard to compare an interview with a someone that's maybe a couple of years into their journey versus mm. somebody that's got tenure and track record at, you know, building. Yeah, agreed, it's different. I still think the non-negotiables stand. Yeah. Because they're non-negotiables regardless of how experienced you are. Like, like I said, how you might understand what your non-negotiables are is you look at your top performers and you actually dissect, like, why are they our top performers? Like, what do they have in common? What do they do differently? What are their beliefs? Like, mm-hmm. I've, I still think that stands. I think from speaking to recruitment founders about making experienced hires, I think, yeah, track record is important, but you really need to try and sense check that track record because I don't know what your experience has been like, but I've spoken to a lot of founders who have really been burnt by, you know, hiring people that said they did X and they didn't. Mm -hmm. So I think the non-negotiables still stand. I think what becomes really important, I think, like reference checks and, okay, they've said this, how can I collect evidence that backs up, like, that they are who they say they are? So they're the things that I would think about. It is different. Obviously, it's even more of a risk because it's going to be an even more larger investment. Yeah. But for me, I feel like the non-negotiables still stand. Yeah, I, and I, I do agree with you. I think it's something that, again, funny enough, I learned when I was working at Wiser is one of our clients used to use something called ICE. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was intelligence, coachability, yeah. character and experience. And still to this day, I think mm. it's such an interesting way to hire and interview people. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you think about, you, you talk a lot about how to, I suppose, replicate how your top performers, what your top performers are doing into new hires, mm-hmm. how, do you prevent, how do you prevent a cult-like atmosphere? Because mm. it happens a lot in recruitment, right? Mm. You've got kind of like a high-performing SMT team and then everyone below just kind of churns away and yeah, yeah. comes in and out. It's like a rolling, what is it, revolving door. Yeah. Um, how do you prevent that happening? What are people saying that you've met? Are there any examples? What of- specific, so... What, how do I prevent everyone looking and sounding the same? Yeah, or how do I, I, yeah, prevent I suppose attrition? so. But it's how, also how do you take the best parts of the top performers and make sure that there isn't what is like a cult-like atmosphere where you've mm. kind of got everyone walking and, to your point, walking and talking the same? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's obviously difficult, right? I don't, you know, the things that I, I don't know what you think, but I, the things that I think about when I'm trying to understand why is April a top performer, it's less about... For me, it's less about, I'm more interested in trying to understand like your beliefs and the, like, the things that you do really well rather than like your background, okay. what you look like, like your, the path that you're on. So for me, I would want to un- uncover like, is work ethic something that they have in common? Is personal responsibility uh, something that they have in common? Is coachability something that they have yeah. in common? It's like more of the okay. characteristics and traits yeah. rather than... April came from a really good university. She's got, you know, she grew up in a household where she had both her parents are still together, like all that, let's hire these people. Or April, like, had a really struggling childhood. She's got a chip on her shoulder, let's just hire all those people. Yeah. So I, that's what I'd be want to just at least trying to focus and understand, like, what are the beliefs and values of these people? And can we uncover these beliefs and values in other people? Okay. So for anyone listening, if they're trying to take away like nuggets of information from that that mm. advice, almost kind of like interview your top performers and mm. see what traits are consistent across that team and then utilise that in your interview processes. Totally, yeah. And then use your non-negotiables. Well, just start trying to think about, because yeah. your environment is unique. Yeah, okay. So at least it, it should be a worthy exercise, because I speak to a lot of founders that don't have non-negotiables, they don't know what their non-negotiables are. Mm-hmm. So even to start taking steps towards 
having a bit more science around why they interview the people, uh, sorry, why they hire the people they hire is probably going to be a good exercise. Yeah. When do you, so I suppose, again, going back to some of the founders that you've interviewed, is there a way that they've built their teams? Who have they hired first? Has there been a model that's worked or mm. anything that you've picked up on that you think, yeah, that's, you know, clearly consistently time and time again worked for those businesses? It's hard, right? I think it depends on the resources that you have. And what I mean by that is if I'm, uh, if I've just started my business, what resources do I have? How can I ensure that the person I'm hiring um, has the best chance of being successful? Yeah. Is my only resource that I can offer them my time and experience? Mm -hmm. Or is my resource because I started my business with RE, like yeah. can I benefit from those resources and yeah. use that to my advantage? So I think that's the first thing you need to ask yourself is like, what resources do I have available? Is it my time that's and experience? Really point, yeah. Or is it like the infrastructure that you guys yeah. can offer, right? So I think that's that's the first thing. So if it's just time and resource, you have to make a decision on do you really like the idea of hiring someone that doesn't have recruitment experience that you can mould into your own, which people love to do, mm -hmm. but that's going to lean really into you having to put more time and resource into it and what's the knock-on effect on that? You have less yeah. time for the new business, all that. So that's when you then need to be smart around the systems and processes, like documenting them and these things. Yeah. Or... Do you take the route of you only have time and resource to offer this person? So what's going to the likelihood of them being more successful is having someone that does have more of a track record, have more experience. Mm -hmm. So I think it does depend. I think it varies, um, but I, I wouldn't say it's one more than the other. I think the most fundamental thing is like the resources and the platform that I can offer. This place your strength to know what you've got almost. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. And, yeah. and if it is just your time and resources, then you have to be smart with like the processes and the things that you can give yeah. them to hopefully make it easier for you to upskill them and, and train them. Yeah. So going back to our characteristics of value again, and obviously linking this to your pillar, mm. something that we, like one of the questions that we ask to anyone that might be thinking about launching a business is like, do you know anybody would you that you would kind of bring in on that journey? Have you seen there be kind of like a trend where you've got X launches business and then YZ trickles after because they've kind of had that in their plan and like, yeah, I've definitely seen that. I mean, I don't know. I've heard it on a podcast before. I don't know the stat, but there's definitely a stat. Um, it might be from uh, Y Combinator. I can't remember the stat, but there's definitely a stat out there if we were to Google it on the success rate of businesses with one founder compared to two founders, compared to three founders, compared to four founders. Yeah. I'm pretty sure what I remember hearing is the percentage is higher for people that have at least two or three. Mm -hmm. I'm not surprised about that. Yeah. So it kind of eliminates that feeling of being on your own, right? Yeah, and also a lot of recruitment founders, I don't know what you see in the portfolio, but a lot of successful recruitment businesses have two who have two founders or three, they do bring different things to the table. Yeah. So someone will be excellent at client facing, winning new business. The other person might be able to do it, but they're world class at the operations, thinking about process, like willing to get their head around the P&L and these things, whereas yeah. this new business-facing person isn't. Yeah. So I think oftentimes it's about, you know, if you do launch a recruitment business, can you launch it with someone who does complement your skill set? Because mm -hmm. that's a great position to be in. Yeah. And it's typically someone that is front-facing, winning new business, um, leading by the front, you know, championing culture, all that mixed with someone who is more of like an integrator, maybe a bit more operations, happy to like be really focused on processes, um, holding people accountable, 
um, making sure that meetings are staying on time, yeah. P&L, whatever. Mm -hmm. Those are typically the mixes. Kind of like the husband and wife. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay, nice. Thanks for that one. Um, so you speak about investing in the future lead leaders, not under-investing. I absolutely love that pillar. <laughs> like I really did. But also we've kind of referred to it a few points, um, a few times, sorry, is that over-investing could again create not like a cult-like, mm. but you can kind of under-invest in the other people in the business, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to you? I know I've asked that question again, but it's actually mm. a really, really good point. And what, the, they build, um, sorry, the, they over-invest yeah. over in their future leaders and not under-invest. What, what, what triggered you to put that? So the reason why is because, so I see this firsthand. So basically a lot of, so firstly, you're not going to grow a recruitment business unless you can develop leaders. Yeah. Agreed. That's just fact. You can't. You can't. You don't build any enterprise of value in your business if the business is entirely reliant on you. Mm -hmm. That's just the truth. Like no one is going to buy a recruitment business if I buy it and then April wants to leave and the business. Well, like, it dependency on the founder, right? It's yeah. Like, it's, but it's going to be extremely difficult if you don't have a leadership team underneath you that you know people yeah. are confident that can keep um, you know doing what the business has been doing. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. So it is really important. So what I mean by this is time and time again. Uh, top performing recruiters are uh, find themselves in a management position because they got there because they're exceeding their targets, they're doing well, and most founders think, if only we could create three, four, five of them, right? So let's promote uh, April to a management position. She can keep hitting that number, and then she can get people up to um, speed because she'll just say, look, just, keep doing, just do what I'm doing, just follow me, just, like, just copy me. So where I see this firsthand is often people find themselves in that city, a player coach role where they still have to hit a number and they now have to manage people. But oftentimes they get little or no support on how do I now develop a skill set where I don't just tell people what to do, but I can you know, inspire people to do the right things right. and encourage the right behaviors. And ultimately, how can I make this person underneath me better? Like that's a specific skill set to coach, to manage, to lead. It isn't as simple as just do what I do. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's really difficult. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people that we partner with to deliver training for us are in those seats. Okay. So the reason why I really see this firsthand is at the core of our like incentives around why April should be willing to deliver training for us on the yeah. platform is that we say to you, um, as part of you giving us time, we're going to enroll you in a free coach accelerator course, which is delivered by leadership coach, where we've worked with them to develop a specific course, which will help you have the skill set that you currently don't have, which is coaching your team. And the reason why I developed that and worked with a guy called Andrew on that is because I spoke to these billing managers, player coaches, where they got there because they're top performers. And they've had no support on how to get more out of their team, manage, develop their team. And it's really frustrating for them because they got there because they were performing. They're now managing people and dealing with more stress, probably earning less money. Mm -hmm. But their success is now directly correlated with how their team performs. Mm -hmm. And they've had no development yeah. on how do I execute a good one-on-one? -on -one? Mm -hmm. How do I not just tell someone to do something and inspire mm -hmm. them, these types of things. Yeah. I think that I'm talking about personal experiences. I've always been a biller or like mm. an individual contributor and going into management, 
I suppose was never on the path because mm-hmm. it's something that I knew that I just I was selfish I yeah, think yeah. in other words um but to your point I've kind of worked with people that naturally they wake up and they are caring and they want to support and they want to coach and they want mm-hmm. to mentor having you know if you're looking at it holistically having an appetite to want to win and build are let's say aggressive traits and then wanting to nurture and manage a mm. team it's completely different getting that as a balance i imagine it's quite right when ultimately the goal is to build scale yeah generate revenue but i do think co- coaching is a skill it can be learned yeah so that I, I i agree with you i think the only the only development path shouldn't be april you're a top performer so you have to be a manager absolutely not like there should be a career pathway for april to keep focusing on her craft yeah how can we you know create a career pathway for you that isn't just management because you don't want to do that but just because you have those maybe aggressive behaviours doesn't mean you can't be a good coach. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you want you you're going to have to want to get better at. It. You're going to have to yeah, want to learn course. about how yeah. to do it. But a lot of recruitment companies just expect these top performers to get these other people to where they got to because they figured out they can do it. Yeah, and they're just not given any. Uh, obviously, companies do invest, in it, but a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. So if I'm kind of I'm just thinking about people that are listening, right, and they're thinking, right, how can I apply what we've just discussed? tomorrow what what do I need to do I've got you know three people on the bench that I think are ready for promotion Mm -hmm. they've listened to the podcast they're probably going right let me hold fire and really think about what I need to do in order to get those promotions right so you're thinking about obviously you're going to kind of (laughs) plug Hector no no not at all no not at all so (laughs) things I'll be thinking about is are you truly setting them up to win yeah because yeah are you truly setting them up to, to succeed so have you got a fair comp in place yeah. for this person? Mm-hmm. So April is now a billing manager. She's promoted. Yeah. Is it fair that I still expect her to hit X number, which she was hitting when she was an individual contributor and didn't have to mentor three people underneath her? That's the first thing I'll be thinking about. Have you got you know, the comp structure in place, which makes it fair to, for April to take on this extra responsibility whilst trying to maintain her performance? Because a lot of people don't have a fair comp on that. That's the first thing. The second thing is, what can you equip them with that can help them succeed in this role? So, for example, could you equip them with things like how to do one-on-ones? Okay, yeah. Could you equip them with um, uh, suggestions on how to set their team up for the week and what management meetings they should have in the week? Should it be every Monday they do a stand-up, then they do a one-on-one, and then on Friday they do a team wrap-up? I don't know. Whatever you found has worked for you, but can you equip them with systems that they can use as a manager rather than like figure out? Mm-hmm. So there's some of the things that I'll be thinking about is like, yeah, is the comp fair? Because we want to keep these people engaged. This is the off- this is like the crazy thing. I'm sure you speak to these people. Yeah. Like oftentimes people uh, start thinking about leaving because they found themselves in a management leadership role. They're earning less money, they're doing more stress, mm-hmm. and they're not don't feel like they're being compensated for mm-hmm. it. So yeah, is the comp right? Is it fair? Can you be, you know, creative with if your team performs this, you get X, I'm going to reduce your number by 25%. You should Mm -hmm. still be able to hit this sort of number. But tell me if you don't think you're going to be able to and why you don't think it's fair. Can we then, you know, give them practical, uh, you know, assets that they can use to help them do the management responsibilities now? So one-on-ones, setting up the week right. Can we give them agendas and stuff that they can use? And also, can you offer them actual practical suggestions on, how to deliver the management side of the, the job. So the one-on-ones they now have to do, the monthly reviews they now have to do, yeah. and think about that. So can you equip them with those things? Yeah, no, do you know what? That's really helpful. Um, I'm just thinking kind of linked, but when you 
when you're thinking about promoting somebody and you know they've got all the right traits and you want them to be in the business long term, is there any insight you can share on equity? Is that like what, at what point do you give you know one of your managers? Is it something that you've spoken to? You know, yeah, I mean, it's a great. It, a lot of people use use that as a carrot to keep their people engaged. Yeah, of course. So, you know, the common things that I've heard is you have the employee share scheme, yeah. right? So I think, again, there's, I think what I found, because I have friends that have been in recruitment for a long time, they've progressed the ranks, they have this carrot dangled in front of them. I think oftentimes what recruitment companies don't do a great job of is making it really clear on how April can benefit from now having these shares. Okay. Because oftentimes people don't realise that the only way that you get any sort of financial gain from having these shares is if there's some sort of business exit yeah, or something happens. Exactly, yeah. So I think it's a great way to keep people um, engaged. I think it's just about making sure that you have uh, you uh, clearly communicate what it means, yeah. how they can now benefit from having these shares mm-hmm. um, and having you know complete clarity on those things. Yeah, I mean, look, I've, I've spoken to a number of recruiters now and it's kind of like it doesn't mean anything until there's an event, right? So it's just... A lot I, of people don't know that, though. I know. It's um I, I, I I'm, the amount of times in when I was recruiting in tech that it was just like I'm saying for the equity and that never came to fruition or never meant anything. I just yeah. think what you to your point there, and giving visibility on what that actually means mm. as opposed to just like you said dangling the carrot and hoping mm-hmm. that they stay. Nine times out of ten they don't. Yeah. yeah. Um. Nice. Okay. So kind of like, like wrapping up really and thinking about your last um your last pillar. So mm. they build infrastructure for scale rather than waiting until. Um, what they're doing breaks. Yeah, so this is where you guys come in, I feel like. So the quote that, so I interviewed a guy again who um, has sold or been involved in two recruitment exits, recruitment business exits. Yeah. I really like this uh, analogy that he uses when I had him on the podcast, you let me know what you think. So, you know, 80 or whatever the percentage is is high in the UK recruitment industry is like sub 10 heads. Yeah. Why is that? One of the common things that I've found is Oftentimes, recruitment founders of smaller businesses don't have like the mindset of what do I need to be doing now that's going to help me in like two years time to help me get to where I want to get to. Mm-hmm. They're just all they've got in their mind is I'm a recruiter. I just need to build more to get more recruiters to do 150, 200 grand a year. Like that's how they're thinking. You know, recruitment uh, founders that scale their business don't think like that. Mm-hmm. So the analogy that Mike used, which I really liked, is when you were younger, the way to think about it is when you got bought clothes your parents bought you to grow into right if you think of that when you're growing up like i definitely remember getting clothes where it's like yeah like these will be fine they're a bit big now but you can grow into them yeah that's how you need to think about your recruitment business so if you want to get to 30 heads what does that business need to look like what does the infrastructure need to look like yes it's going to take it's going to make um it's going to be made up by x number of salespeople. But then in the non-sales you know, sales department, the infrastructure, yeah. what is that going to be made up of? Do you need an ops manager? Do you need a marketing manager? Do you need a trainer? You need to reverse engineer from where you want to get to. And then the best founders, rather than waiting until it's just chaos and it's like, oh my God, like we need this person now, they'll make the hire of what they need two steps before they need it, yeah, is the way that I put yeah. it. Yeah, so it might be, I know I'm at 10 heads. Yeah. For me to get to 20, I know I need an ops manager or an office manager or someone to pick up these responsibilities that I always find myself doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hire this person now, get them up to speed, get them doing that. I might It might be a bit before I need them 
because I could probably keep doing what I'm doing. But if I hire them now and then we keep going where we want to, I'm going to really benefit from that two steps later on. Yeah, I think also like to that point, I mean, obviously the beauty of RE, right, it's all kind of there, the ops, the yeah. marketing, everything's there for you. And obviously building at scale, you're thinking about not only who's in front working with the clients, but the amount of work that goes on behind the scenes, like so the due much. diligence, the inf- like to your point, the infrastructure. I mean, these things, when you're a founder of a recruitment business, you're more than likely going to be salesy because you've kind of started that business because you've got yeah, that. Yeah, you, don't, you don't think about those things. You don't have the time to think about those things. And again, it's it's time consuming, it's costly. Um, yeah, the, the best thing to bring that to life, the most common hurdle I found first-time founders run into, yeah. which often they're maybe a bit naive to or didn't realise, is how long it takes to get paid. Because when you're employed, you do not think about payment terms. I put, I've done 15 grand this month. Why am I not getting paid until mm-hmm. you know a month later? You just think about, I've done my number, I'll get paid next month. When you're a founder, you realize customers don't always pay on time, right? So that's a perfect example. You don't think about those things. Um, so the infrastructure that you require to scale and grow your business yeah. is absolutely key if you do want to successfully scale. And you know, the, the businesses that do scale really try and work out what that looks like. Is it a not, do I need a not manager? Do I need the marketing person? You know, the things that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. But again, these aren't, these aren't things often that you get exposed to. Some recruitment leaders do who are like directors. They might get exposed to the P&L, net fee income, EBITDA, like working out these things. Yeah. But a lot of people don't, which is why, you know, a solution like you guys exists and why it adds so much value for people because straight away I can just focus on what I do best, which is bringing on clients, exactly being that. front-facing, yeah. not having to worry when I'm going to get paid, you know, my uh, website looking good, my terms being on point, etc., etc. Yeah, no, we, we spoke about that exact point about payment terms at our CEO forum a few weeks ago, um, and it is eye-opening, and it's obviously trying to c- control, a, you know, really exciting, fascinating businesses into just thinking com- completely differently from being an employee to a mm, founder. Different mindset. Completely different mindset. So it's a really good and interesting point. Um, I'm conscious of time, but something that I'm kind of intrigued to understand is if, if you could summarise what you think it takes uh, in three words to be a successful recruitment entrepreneur, what do you think it is? Three words? Yeah. <laughs> can it be different words? Yeah, of course it can. <laughs> um... Uh, humility. Okay. Um, humility, I'd say. I think you've got to put curiosity in there, surely. You've <laughs> spoken about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You curiosity, yeah, I, I, that's fair. I, w- I would say that. Humi- um, humility, curiosity, and then I would say just commitment, like, is hard. Yeah. You've got to commit to it. But yeah, humility, curiosity, commitment. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ishan. Good to see you.